Hit a home run and get pre-approved for your next refinance or home purchase at thehomeloanexpert.com. Enjoy the podcast. This is Cardinals broadcaster and Schnooks shopper Dan McLaughlin. Schnooks would like to thank everyone during this difficult time. That includes those that are working in the stores. As you can imagine during this time, Schnooks employees are putting in long hours around the clock to best serve our community. So the next time you're in Schnooks, tell them thanks and that you appreciate them. Let them know how much we appreciate their efforts because we will all get through this together. One of my favorite people in the business of baseball, Chris Welsh, former Major League pitcher and now longtime analyst with the Cincinnati Reds. He also runs a website that will not only teach you about the rules, but uh, bring you in. It's interactive as well. Chris, as always, uh, I, I miss seeing you. It's great talking to you, but uh, hopefully we'll see each other in person fairly soon. How you doing? I'm doing great, Danny. You know, we were we were uh, scheduled to to meet up on opening day in Cincinnati, the parade and the Cardinals and everything else. It's uh, it's one of the big matchups that I always love when the Reds play the Cardinals because I, I I get to see a couple of teams that I really like and get to hang around you. So uh, thanks for having me on today. You got it. I miss playing golf with you. I miss seeing you on opening day, and I I really miss seeing what this rivalry would have been like in 2020, and maybe we'll still. We'll have that chance, but what what were your expectations for the Reds coming into the season? Well, very high expectations. You know, the Reds, I think, uh, the front office, that is, took a look at their roster and said, hey, we don't think that we're going to have a better starting pitching rotation uh, in the next few years than we do right here in 2020. So the winner of 2019-2020 is the one they decided to go for it. Uh, they went out and they spent a lot of money. They committed more than $160 million in free agents. Uh, they made some trades. Uh, they decided to bolster their offense a little bit, bring in guys like Mike Moustakas and, and uh, uh, Nick Castellanos uh, to, to get already a pretty decent team over the edge. And I think that that was part of it, Dan. I think the other part of it is that, that they see the window of uh, Joey Votto being a, a high you know, quality caliber, possibly MVP type player beginning to close and close quickly. So you want to also take advantage of that. So I think everybody in Cincinnati had great expectations for this ball club. What did that lineup look like, uh, especially towards the tail end of spring when you're playing your regulars and you're seeing Moustakis, Castellanos, uh, Suarez, Vado, some of the others. And I know there's some injuries mixed in there, but you didn't have the full complement. But what was it looking like as you were heading towards uh, that opening day matchup with the Cardinals? You know, the interesting part of the lineup was at the very top for me because the Reds went and they signed their first ever Japanese free agent, Shogo Akiyama, uh, who's a left-handed hitter, not a big power guy, but he was always a very good on-base percentage player over in Japan. And I think that that the Reds thought that his skill set would play pretty well in the major leagues in the same way. He would probably platoon a little bit, maybe with a young player named Nick Senzel. I think you got to look at him last year. He came into camp injured with a shoulder injury, but you know he should be ready to go right now. Uh, so I think that that would be the top end of the lineup. Joey Votto would probably be in the number two spot. And then from there, it would be the Suarez or Moustakas or Castellanos, however David Bell wanted to play the lefty-righty matchups. Uh, and I think the good thing for the Reds, at least in their fan standpoint, is that they've got some firepower. They would have some threats in that lineup as far as power hitters all the way down to the, you know, probably the number seven spot and even the eight spot. Freddie Galvis, who is going to take over shortstop on an everyday basis, is the guy that switch hitter. You can expect 15 to 20 out of him. So I think that there was a lot of 
excitement to go along with good pitching, that they were going to see some home run balls hit too. What would the uh, rotation look like, you know, when you think about some of the, the big names that you have coming back and guys that really kind of reclaim their careers in Cincinnati? I, I thought your pitching was going to be really improved this year. You know, the pitching is going to be improved because you have veteran status pitchers who are now reaching their peak age-wise. These guys aren't 35 years old. They're, you know, 29, 28, 27 years old. But you can pick one and 1A, whether it's Sonny Gray or, or uh, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Trevor Bauer. No, no, well, no, Trevor Bauer, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Castillo. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, Castillo was, was the, the start, opening day starter last year. Uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Bauer is on board. Obviously, Sonny Gray had a uh, – he got some Cy Young Award votes. And uh, so I think that those top three are guys that they really think are going to be um, – they, they would keep the Reds from having any kind of long losing streaks, which is always a real problem on a ball club that doesn't excel. Wade Miley was signed as a free agent, uh, left-hander for the first time in a Reds rotation. Uh, it's very exciting. And uh, it, it, it's kind of funny that, you know, you go one through one through five in that rotation, and uh, now you're, you're looking at maybe the, some of the guys who were in the rotation last year and the year before or, or no, like Tyler Malley, for instance, uh, who pitched pretty well at times last year for the Reds, probably looking at going to AAA. So it's been a long time before the Reds have had that kind of depth that they came into spring training, you know, looking to cut pitchers off their roster rather than add pitchers to their rotation. How odd would it have been this year, and hopefully we'll, we'll find out, but to not see Marty Brenneman in the radio booth in a Cincinnati Reds game, how, how odd would that have been, Chris? I think even more odd for you would be not to see him in the media dining room uh, because <laughs> a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, I think that the best 45 minutes of my day uh, is sitting with Marty and having dinner because this guy holds court. Uh, he has a great stage presence. Uh, he loves you and gets on you all the time. And uh, I mean, he can, he can get that needle in there and, and turn it a little bit, you know, sometimes make you hurt. Uh, but uh, that's he, the beauty of it, though. Yeah, it is the beauty of it. And the guy is completely unhinged, you know, when he's not on the air. When he's on the air, he's one of the best professionals ever. Uh, calls a terrific game. Reds fans are going to really miss him, I think, because it's, you know, little by little, the fabric of the game is changing. And when you lose icons like Marty Brenneman in the TV, in the radio booth, you know, you just don't have, you don't have the comfort of turning the radio on and hearing that, that old leather shoe that fits so well kind of a voice. And, uh, you know, things move on, certainly, but uh, there's certainly going to be a big void to fill. I want to get to your site here in just a moment, but a final question about the Reds. David Bell and his long history with his family, with the Reds and the city of Cincinnati, what would it mean on a personal level for David Bell to win in Cincinnati and to do it with the Reds? What, what do you think that would mean to him and for the city and the fan base? I think it would mean everything uh, for him, obviously. I mean, he's, he's always been a guy, even going back to the days when Dusty Baker was managing. Dusty told me one time, he goes, you know who's going to succeed me as manager? It's going to be David Bell. That time, David Bell was managing the double-A team for the Reds. Uh, in the meantime, he had moved on. He became the, the bench coach for the Cardinals. He, he's well-respected. His father, Buddy Bell, uh, is in the Reds' front office. His dad did everything from play to, to manage to 
your front office operative, coach, and so on. Uh, so the Bell family, very well entrenched in Cincinnati, it would mean a lot. I mean, Cincinnati is a lot like St. Louis, where you're really proud of your own when they do something fun and great. And I think that that's how they would appreciate David Bell. Uh, the one thing that I would recommend, you didn't ask this question, but I, I think that the one thing, David Bell, you learn as a manager is that you have to sometimes follow your own instincts a little more than – you, you think you do. Uh, anybody can manage with a stat sheet. Anybody can manage now with the, all the analytics that the science departments and the data departments are giving to the manager. But I want to see him take that one step forward where he begins to manage, you know, people and, and situations and putting guys in situations where they can succeed by using his gut feel a little bit because he's got a great sense of baseball. He knows the game. He's got a great sense of being a leader too. And I think that this could have been a pretty good year for him. Uh, hopefully we'll still get to see some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Walsh has been working on a website that uh, defines the rules of the game. And as we know, there's so many quirky oddities and things that happen in the game of baseball. Why did you get so involved with the site and tell us about the site, the name of it and where people can go, but why did you start doing this? Well, I, I did it. And the name of the site, Dan, is very simple. It's Baseball Rules Academy, uh, baseballrulesacademy.com. I did it as a broadcaster because I thought as a player, I played 10 years, five in the major leagues, five in the big league, in the minor leagues. But I always thought I knew the rules just by being around the game. I'd read the rule book from time to time, you know, and I thought I was one of those guys who was, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable about rules than my teammates until I got in the TV booth. And then it was a quirky rules related play on the field. And I look around and I'm like, holy Moses, what, what happened there? And we go to break and I'm supposed to have the answer in 60 seconds when we come back. Right. And I would look through the rule book and I realized I couldn't find anything. I decided right then and there, make a database to attach slang words to the rule book. So like if a batter drops his bat on the ball, what happens? Well, I'd write it. So I began to develop this database. And I realized when I started getting into it, man, this baseball rule book is about as complicated as any rule book out there. Um, so it's taken me a long time. After seven or eight years now, we finally have come out with our second version of the rules website. Um, during a peak of a regular major league season, we're getting three to 5,000 people a day on the site. It's always free to look up any rule. We've got rules at uh, high school level, college level, little league, U-Triple-S, Olympics, and, of course, major league level. So you can look up any rule you want just by typing in some some uh, some slang words or maybe even a player's name or something like that. Uh, we've got an extensive database there. Uh, but there's also a premium membership level that, you know, if you want to take advantage of all the, the videos we have, we have close to 300 teaching videos. We have probably 300 uh, special case reports of, of interpretive plays that have happened in the major leagues and and how umpires look at things. So if you're a if you're a serious coach or serious player or an aspiring umpire, uh, I mean it's the place to, to to go because you can take it with you, put it in your pocket, and uh, call up any rule anytime. Baseballrulesacademy.com. Give me a, a situation in baseball that people interpret wrong all the time, but yet you you see it on a nightly basis in Major League Baseball. Well, the first one that comes to mind for me is one that we saw last year during the World Series. It was game number six, inning number seven, when Trey Turner hit a little ground ball on the third base side of the pitcher's mound. He ran down to first base. Now, Trey Turner is a right-handed hitter, so a direct line from his right-handed batter's box to first base is in fair territory. He's running down the line. The pitcher picks the ball up, throws it, 
and the ball gets to the second baseman who's covering, who is his Guriel, uh, uh, at the same time that the runner does. And um, there was interference called, and um, and everybody just went crazy. You know, you can't do this in a World Series. I mean, the analysts had it wrong. Uh, Trey Turner didn't understand what he was doing wrong. It took Joe Torre in a post-game meeting with the press to explain the rule. And this is one of the most commonly misunderstood rules at every different level, amateur baseball, high school baseball, college, all the way up to the big leagues. And um, that's one that it's called the runner's lane or the 45-foot lane violation. And uh, it was a perfect call by the umpire and crew in that World Series. And that's one that comes to my mind uh, right away that uh, people just don't know. But once they realize that it's a rule, it makes them a better player or a fan. Yeah, d- define that then. So you have the runner's lane in the first base lane, you know, where people say, well, he's got to be between the two white lines. That's not necessarily the case, is it? No, you don't. You know, if you go to a big league game, you, you look at the first baseline, you see a little line that starts halfway, 45 feet from first base, 45 feet from home plate. And then it gives you a little three foot lane that is in foul territory. When a, now a runner is not forced to run in that lane. However, if he's not running in that lane and he interferes with the fielder receiving the throw, then you could be charged for interference. And that's what happened to Trey Turner. There's no rule because if it's a ground ball, the second baseman, and there's no way that you're going to get in the way of the throw, then there's no reason for you to be in that lane. However, on balls that are hit right in front of home plate, maybe a bunt, maybe a little swinging bunt or a squibber, that the catcher comes out and fields, and if he's got to throw to first base, if that runner is in fair territory, then he could be cutting off the throwing lane for the fielder who's receiving the throw, presumably the first baseman. And if he is, that's when an umpire should call runner's interference. And if if that's the case, the ball is dead, the runner's awarded first base. And uh, a lot of people don't. Now, what happens, you know, a lot of what I see in high school baseball, Dan, is that umpires don't call this because when they do, coaches go berserk. They go crazy. They can't believe it. And so it's a lot easier sometimes to make the no call than it is to make the right call. But it's not teaching your players the right way to play in the game. How about a ground ball to a second baseman with a runner at first? How much distance should the runner give? Because, you know, you always hear you have to allow him to make the play. And then you hear about the tag. And is he out of a lane? Well, where is the lane? How does that all work on some of those kind of plays? Well, there's no lane really between first and second base. Uh, the, the, there's a, but there's a right-of-way that goes on in the base paths. And, and I think that's one thing that you're referring to. Anytime that a fielder is fielding a batted ball, he's got the right-of-way. The runner has to clear out of the way. You can't run by him and touch him. You can't run so close to him that the umpire would deem it interference because contact's not necessary. And you can't run by him and yell at him and say, hey, you know, Alex Rodriguez did uh, when he was playing for the Yankees right. years ago. Um, so, but what what you can do is anticipate what's happening. Uh, if you're a first a runner at first base and you see a ground ball to the second baseman, there's no play being made on you as far as the tag play. So you can make a big circle around that fielder and not be out of the baseline. So you would force him to rather than tag you. Uh, he have to go to second base to start a double play. Uh, but the one thing you do not want to do, of course, is to run into a fielder when he's fielding the ball. And then how much room – you get three feet, correct? So if he's trying to do a tag double play, make the make the ground ball, make the play in his glove, tag the runner, throw to first, but 
that runner, he's only got three feet one way or another, correct? Yeah, and, and this is where it gets kind of funny. And I think that uh, those, when you start seeing videos, and that's where a website like mine it really comes in handy because you can see it visually. There, the, a runner has no base path until there's a play being made on him. So, for instance, if I'm um, taking a lead from first base and a throw over um, to first base and I'm caught way off the bat, I can start running out towards um, the right field if I want because where I, I establish my own running lane. So as soon as somebody tries to make a tag on me, I now have to have a running base path and that base path would be a direct line between where the tag is attempted to be made on me and the next base. So it's not, it's not an exact geometric line from first base to second base to third base. It's where the runner is and where the tag is being made. That's when you establish your baseline. And the three feet you're talking about is three feet on either side of that line. So really the runner has six feet. But when somebody comes to you with the tag, if the ground ball goes to the second baseman and you're not there yet and he steps towards you to make a tag, now you have three feet on either side to try to get around him. If you can't do that, you'll be out of the baseline. Do you think umpires are okay with an electronic strike zone? It seems more so that it's it's sooner rather than later. I know you talk to a lot of the, the umpires for BaseballRulesAcademy.com. What do you think their thoughts are on, on that particular situation? You know, Dan, I thought there was a time when they were not okay with the, the review place. Uh, yeah. They reluctantly said, okay, we'll review home runs. We'll review foul and fair home and now they're reviewing basically everything. And I think that, yes, uh, it used to be a black mark when you make a call out on the field and it would be overturned. But now the umpires realize, hey, you know, it is what it is. They're able to slow this down to the millisecond. I'm trying to make a call in real time uh, with just my only and my eyesight. And uh, I'm not embarrassed anymore. So I think the same thing would happen with the uh, robotic strike zone as well. Uh, I don't know if the technology is there yet. I think as long as the umpires feel that there's going to be a home plate umpire and that they can still stay employed, they're going to be okay with it. Yeah, I also like the idea of them addressing the crowd this year. And uh, obviously we're not seeing that yet. But on these reviewable plays, at least explaining it to the fan base. Because at times you could have multiple different reviews that dictate if you want to challenge another play. So it's very important to at least explain that to the, uh, the viewing audience. Yeah, and I think the umpire is a little worried about that because not all of them are great public speakers. It's and not easy. The last yeah, thing I agree. They want to do is to get on there and, for instance, in football, when the NFL has their referee come and he gets on camera and he turns his microphone on, he explains, well, he's the one guy out of that crew that gets to talk. Umpires, though, they shift every night, so it may not be only you know the the the. the the, the home crew, the, the, the crew chief that does this, it might be somebody else who gets mic'd up and they're worried uh, that they may not be the best public speaker and that they, they flub a couple of words and they comes out wrong. All of a sudden it goes viral and they get, they get embarrassed. But I think that if people just kind of give them break, give them a break, realize that they're trying to do the best they can, uh, that they are very well versed in the rules. And, and, and uh, I've gotten to know almost all the umpires and I can tell you, they, uh, they take a lot of pride in what they do the same way the players do. Uh, they want to be invisible. And uh, they certainly don't want to be the reason a team wins or loses because of a bad call. So uh, it'll be interesting. But I think for the fans' sake, it'll be better whether you're in the, in the stands or watching on TV. 
we're going to get explanations from the umpires this year that we've never had before. Uh, final question, baseballrulesacademy.com. So we don't have games going on right now. What are, you, what are you trying to do with your site to make sure that fans are still engaged? Well, I'll tell you, I've come up with a program, Dan, and, and uh, we've had a couple of live casts under our belt so far. Uh, we call it Ask the Rules Guy. A couple of different people who are rules experts. We've covered some video and look at stuff and break it down and so on. And if you're a real rules guy, you know, you like that kind of stuff. But we're going to take it one step further. We're going to have a rules challenge, a little game show. And uh, we're going to start with announcer versus announcer. And uh, I'm happy to report to everybody in St. Louis that uh, Dan McLaughlin will be representing the Cardinals. This could uh, get ugly. Several months. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure who we're going to pitch you up against. Maybe be Lenny Casper of the Cubs or maybe be Brian Anderson, maybe Tom Brenneman. Uh, but it will be uh, Dan McLaughlin, say, versus Tom Brenneman. And we'll throw out, you know, four or five rules questions and we'll have an umpire there as being arbiter, and we'll have a little fun going back and forth. Nobody gets embarrassed, but everybody learns a little bit about the rules and uh, has some fun in the process. I love it. BaseballRulesAcademy.com. Chris, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Always great to talk with you. Blue Fuse, we are St. Louis. Dan McLaughlin here to tell you about the hometown automotive family I trust the most, the Lou Fuse Automotive Network, and you know they are St. Louis. Lou Fuse has been a part of St. Louis for over seven decades. They're proud to support St. Louis and the surrounding areas with cars, youth, sports, and charitable efforts. 14 brands, 10 locations. Just visit Fuse.com to start shopping today. Lou Fuse, we are St. Louis.